Terrorism, Law, and Democracy. Terrorism and the Rule of Law, the international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th. There is no relation between this, what I've called a power grab, and the war on terrorism. This new change is not about making us safer. It is about putting the government back in control over what we know. There's talk of corruption, of system and state. There's talk of destruction by warheads and hate. Friends, we must believe in something, or soon it will be too late. Part 7, Rights and Restrictions, Our Democracy in the Balance. core of the anti-terrorism legislation is the domestic implementation of international law undertakers, in particular the domestic implementation by Canada of 12 issue-specific anti-terrorist undertakings, as well as those undertakings mandated by the UN Security Council resolution. Alors, j'aurais un souhait que c'est que ce genre de conférence se multiplie, se multiplie à travers le Canada, à différents niveaux et dans différents milieux, et qui donne naissance à un véritable mouvement pour échapper ce qui reste de notre vie privée au Canada. On prend donc un véritable élan dans le questionnement de la nécessité de limiter euh, nos libertés. Et que donc la loi antiterroriste et ses implications puissent servir de point de départ pour les Canadiens dans ce débat. Welcome to Rights and Restrictions, Democracy in the Balance, part 7 of the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy. My name is Khalid Amsafar. In this episode, we examine the tensions between national security imperatives legislated into law and the principles of fundamental justice. We ask, how have the rights of the individual before the state been affected by the new anti-terrorism legislation? Presenting different dimensions of this question are Member of Parliament Erwin Kotler and Professors Errol Mendes and Patrice Garon who participated in the panel discussion Constitutional Democracy Balancing Security and Civil Liberties on March 26, 2002 as part of the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy organized by the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice. I'd like to thank the CIAJ for their assistance in the production of this documentary series. For more information about the CIAJ and its conferences, please visit their website at www.ciaj-icaj.ca. Alan Leadbeater is Deputy Information Commissioner of Canada, and he will address the Commission's alarm with the invasion of individual privacy in the name of public security. The Constitution Act of 1982 guaranteed the constitutional and fundamental nature of individual rights and freedoms in Canada. 
20 years later, the very values of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms have been threatened by the legislative changes wrought by the international and national political imperatives of the war on terrorism. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms states that Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Section 1 guarantees these rights and freedoms. It reads, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it, subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrated justified in a free and democratic society. Section 2. Everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. Freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom of association. The Charter establishes the democratic rights of citizens and the rights to mobility within Canada. At the core of the debate surrounding the effect of the new anti-terrorism legislation on civil liberties are the legal rights established by the Charter. These rights include Section 7 Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Section 8 Everyone has the right to be secure against unreasonable search or seizure. Section 9 Everyone has the right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned. Section 10. Everyone has the right on arrest or detention to be informed promptly of the reasons therefore, to retain and instruct counsel without delay and to be informed of that right, and to have the validity of the detention determined by way of habeas corpus and to be released if the detention is not lawful. Section 11. Any person charged with an offence has the right to be informed without unreasonable delay of the specific offence, to be tried within a reasonable time, not to be compelled to be a witness in proceedings against that person in respect of the offence, and to be presumed innocent until proven guilty according to law in a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal. Section 12. Everyone has the right not to be subjected to any cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. And Section 15, Equality Rights. Every individual is equal before and under the law, and has the right to the equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination, and in particular, without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. Expanding on the analyses and critiques of Canada's anti-terrorism strategy and the new legislation since September 11th, the panel discussion, Constitutional Democracy, Balancing Security and Civil Liberties, considers the implications of the new legislation, particularly Bill C-36, the new Anti-Terrorism Act, in terms of the legal rights of individuals guaranteed by the Constitution. Errol Mendes, professor of law at the University of Ottawa, reflecting on the constitutional problems resulting from Canada's legislated response to terrorism. Let me start off with a statement that I do not think the world changed on September the 11th. In fact, what happened was a changed world finally came to the United States. And because of geopolitical and economic necessity, that included Canada and its other allies. Now that change world included the terrifying reality of what I call the new territory between crime and war. And that new reality has been well known to many countries around the world for a very long time. Um, Britain, France, as we heard yesterday, um, the Middle East, Sri Lanka, Colombo, Colombia, and many other places in the world. I'm not sure I agree with Gwendaya that the terrorists have very rarely won. Um, in the place of my birth, Kenya, uh, a terrorist did win, Jomo Kenyatta. And even though he had tea with the Queen, um, he nevertheless was a victor. Um, I suggest in this new territory between war and crime, as I discuss in my paper, the terrifying reality is that the front lines has been brought, and especially after September 11th, to primarily citizens in the United States and 
possibly citizens in allied countries. The perpetrators of these acts of warfare are very difficult to deal with, with ordinary law enforcement and ordinary um, criminal law prevention techniques. And that's what makes it so difficult. They're inconspicuous uh, in terms of their blending in, as we've seen with some of the terrorists from the September 11th uh, event. Some of them may be very uh, highly qualified persons who did not bring attention to themselves and prepared very quietly for the horrendous acts that were to follow. Democratic societies have the right to protect themselves against um, these acts of terror in this new territory between crime and war. What are the limits? And as some have already said yesterday and today, that while living in a free and democratic society is not an agreement to enter into a suicide pact, neither can we allow ourselves to undermine the fundamental values, human rights and constitutional values that we in a free and democratic society adhere to and which distinguish us from those who commit these acts of terror and those who support and nurture them. Now in my paper, I discuss in particular the concerns uh, around equality, freedom of expression, and due process. Um, I draw your attention in my paper to the concerns of Professor Chowdhury of the University of Toronto in, in the area of racial profiling and his very real concerns that much of the racial profiling may not actually be authorized by the express provisions of Bill C-36 but may be through informal methods such as directives, such as word of mouth, orders, etc. And those are very difficult to police. Those are very difficult to deal with in terms of our fundamental rights and freedoms. And if they do exist, and if they are encouraged by Bill C-36, then I agree with Professor Chowdhury and others that it would be a violation of the equality guarantee in our charter and would not be saved by Section 1. My suggestion, my primary suggestion, in terms of the, oh, I, I, I hate, I'm actually coming to not like the term balancing security and human rights because essentially I think it's more complex than that. I think what one has to talk about is a realignment of different types of rights. Um, in the notion of security itself is the right to life of innocent civilians, uh, the right to um, uh, essentially uh, security of the person that we see in Section 7 of our own charter, etc. And those rights must be realigned with the due process rights in the criminal justice process, the, the equality rights that we have discussed, and the freedom of expression rights that have been raised in this meeting. And it is not a simple question of balancing. Uh, it is more a question of how do you realign them and still remain a free and democratic society. Um, now, I don't have the time to go into uh, what my primary suggestion is how to realign these rights. My suggestion is that the overarching principles of how you realign these rights is through what I call the law and justice of proportionality. I say the law because ultimately the, the government has shown wisdom in not subjecting Bill C-36 and indeed Bill C-42 to the override provision of the Charter which I highly approve of, and many uh, civil liberties supporters hope that eventually uh, Section 33 will fall into disuse, and I highly commend the government in having the courage to allow Bill C-36 to stand the scrutiny of the Charter. Now, in my paper, I go into great detail as to whether or not the most controversial provisions, the preventive um, um, uh, arrest and the investigative hearings will be um, in conformance with the Charter. Um, I first state that in comparisons with other constitutional democracies, such as the United Kingdom, the US, France, um, we have shown legislative restraint. Um, and while the, the ultimate provisions in Bill C-36 are far from perfect, I want to remind my, my colleagues in the human rights community that perfection is often the enemy of the good. I also, in my paper, uh, take oppositional position to my friends at the University of Toronto and uh, those who have uh, critiqued the rationality, which is a critical part 
of the proportionality principle of these measures, stating that um, if the hijackers had lived, they would have been subject to the ordinary provisions of the criminal law anyway, and that if they are willing to die for their beliefs, the prospect of um, investigative hearings or preventative arrests or, or higher penalties is not really deterrent. Um, well, that's the point. The point is that if they had lived, well, it is too late by that stage, and the focus has to be on prevention. And I agree with my colleague, um, Owen Kotler, that the focus of anti-terrorism prevention must be on prevention as opposed to dealing with it after the catastrophe has happened. Um, I also state in my paper that Professor Roach gives up too easily on the constitutional battle. Um, he suggests that because the provisions are charter-proofed, that's the end of the matter. Well, I think that's giving up too easily because I think the focus of charter litigation may very well end up being on the implementation of those provisions. And especially if the fears of Professor Chowdhury are realized that the, the, the implementation may trench into areas such as racial profiling and spilling the, 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 the new powers into the ordinary processes of the criminal law. I suggest that recent Supreme Court of Canada decisions may actually provide a warning to law enforcement agencies that that will be subject to strict constitutional scrutiny. And I, I, I refer you to, in particular to my discussion of the Mentak decision, the own decision, and indeed even the Suresh decision, that the courts are ready and willing to stand guard against the implementation of the provisions in an unconstitutional manner. Now, I qualify that with my concerns about the, the lack of natural justice protections for some of the, the provisions in Bill C-36 and indeed, indeed Bill C-42. Um, that doesn't provide some of the fundamental uh, requirements for charter oversight. However, my strongest criticism for Bill C-36 and indeed other um, um, anti-terrorism measures is what I consider the lack of effective oversight and it builds on the, the statements of Professor Brodeur in particular that the law and justice of proportionality, especially the last part of the principle of proportionality, that there must be proportionality between the benefits of any measure and the effects of any measure, the deleterious effects, that cannot be properly assessed in the absence of effective oversight agencies because how will we ever know what are the beneficial effects, what are the detrimental effects in the absence of effective oversight agencies. And I agree completely with Professor Brodeur that many of the oversight agencies that we have right now are ineffective in properly determining the beneficial and detrimental effects and bringing that to the public attention. So my plea in my paper to the Parliament of Canada, the House of Commons and the Senate is in their review of Bill C-36, their annual reviews and the three-year review, is to focus their attention on the effectiveness of the oversight mechanisms and if they are found wanting, my position is that there is a constitutional duty on the part of the government to either shore up the existing oversight mechanisms or bring into place new oversight mechanisms. In my view, it is a fundamental requirement of the law and justice of proportionality. Um, let me conclude um, um, with my final statements that in some respects, many of us in the human rights community had had a terrible time since um, September the 11th. We have paid attention to the warnings of the historians, as we've heard yesterday, that to overreact is to precisely give victory to those who we are fighting against. And we should take into account the lessons of the Cold War and the treatment of the Japanese Canadians, the lessons of the October crisis, and the lessons of the McCarthy era. But, as I state at the very end of my paper, at the risk of torturing a revered Buddhist expression, we should also remember that neither a country nor the world can enter into the same history twice. The most powerful weapons of mass destruction, in my view, is the human mind. And perhaps the most manifest expression of that is the potential for thousands of terrorists to wreak havoc 
um, on innocent people around the world. In, in the final analysis, in addition to knowing how to deal with the mechanics of terrorism and to make sure that human rights are realigned with issues of national security, that we should also have the wisdom to make sure that the fear of terrorism, as we heard yesterday, does not overwhelm us to the extent that we start becoming like those who we oppose. Thank you very much. Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa and past director of the Human Rights Research and Education Center, Errol Mendez argues that the events of 9-11 have caused a realignment of rights and liberties. He considers the constitutional issues related to Canada's new legislation. Erwin Kotler is Member of Parliament for Outremont and Professor at McGill University's Faculty of Law, where he is Director of its Human Rights Program. He argues that the new legislation's departure from the traditional criminal due process model of justice is necessary to deal with the new war on terrorism. September 11th has had a transformative impact on our psyches as well as on our politics, on our priorities as well as on our purposes. While the threat of terrorism, let alone any legislative response to it, was not even on the parliamentary or political radar screen before September 11th, it has dominated that parliamentary and political radar screen since September 11th, just as it has dominated discussion in the uh, public uh, square, uh, the media, and uh, the like. If nothing else, and at the risk, and I acknowledge this, of extrapolating irony from this horrific uh, tragedy, what has occurred is that September 11th has tended to raise the level and quality of discussion. But while the discussion before our Parliamentary Justice and, and Human Rights uh, Committee and in the halls of academe and in the public square has been very enlightening and informing indeed, it has been beset by an understandable but nonetheless by a certain uh, conventional wisdom organized around the juridical optic or prism of the domestic uh, criminal law due process model. A necessary model, but I suggest to you an insufficient one. And that what is needed is a more inclusive model which joins to it the international criminal justice model similar to what we had in the enactment of the War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity Act in the ratification of the international, uh, in the course of the ratification of the International Criminal Court Treaty and its uh, domestication uh, here in Canada. As well, the suggestion in some of the analysis that what we are dealing with is a matter of national security versus civil liberties tends to be perhaps inadvertently, a misleading form of characterization. I would suggest to you that a more appropriate approach would be that the legislation ought to be seen as anchored in a generic principle of human security, of the protection both of civil liberties and the security of a democracy as well as the fundamental uh, rights of its inhabitants. Indeed, that is the organizing idiom that was used by the United Nations uh, Security Council with respect to the adoption of its unprecedented and, and comprehensive uh, resolution in a matter of uh, counterterrorism, just as it is the optic around which our own human security agenda and human rights foreign policy in Canada is uh, itself organized. And we ought to assess the arguments on their merits rather than in terms of a configuration of national security versus uh, civil liberties. I hope to organize my remarks around uh, two parts. The first is the foundational principles that underpin or underlie a counterterrorism law and policy using Bill C-36 as a case study. And second, the civil libertarian concerns that flow from an analysis of Bill uh, C-36. Let me begin with uh, the first principle, uh, human security. In a word, and as the United Nations uh, put it, 
the principle of human security underpins counterterrorism legislation in that terrorism itself, and particularly this genre of transnational terrorism, has to be seen as an assault upon and threat to international peace and security as it is an assault upon and threat to the security of a democratic polity, let alone the most foundational rights of inhabitants in that policy, as I indicated, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. So the first generic principle of view is a human security principle. The second principle is a civil libertarian principle. Now, the human security principle does not obviate the fact that in the course of the pursuit and the protection of human security, this could give rise to civil libertarian uh, concerns. And indeed, I have, uh, in my paper, identified some 11 categories of civil libertarian concern, which I will summarize in the second part of, of the paper. The third uh, principle is what might be called the uh, contextual uh, principle. By the contextual principle, I'm referring to the approach that was uh, taken by the Supreme Court of Canada, which in its jurisprudence noted that charter rights and any limit imposed on them must be analyzed not in the abstract, but in the factual uh, context which gives rise to them. Accordingly, any counterterrorism law and policy, such as uh, Bill C-36, must factor in the nature and dimensions of this transnational terrorist threat as part of adherence to this contextual principle, and which would in include uh, the increasingly lethal face of terrorism, as in the uh, deliberate mass murder of civilians in public places, the growth and threat of destructive economic and cyber terrorism, which seeks to paralyze the civilian infrastructure, the potential access for, if not prospective use of weapons of mass destruction and of particular relevance to us in this contextual uh, approach, the increased vulnerability of open and technologically advanced democratic societies like Canada to this genre of terror. A fourth foundational principle that underpins uh, anti-terrorism legislation such as Bill C-36 <laughs> is the international criminal justice model. In brief, we're not dealing here with your ordinary or domestic criminal, but with the transnational super-terrorist, as I indicated. Not with ordinary uh, criminality, but with the genre of criminality of crimes against humanity. Not with your conventional threat of criminal violence, but with an existential threat to the whole human family. In a word, we're dealing with Nuremberg crimes and Nuremberg uh, Nuremberg crimes and Nuremberg criminals of hostis humanis generis, those who are called the enemies of humankind. In that sense, the domestic criminal law due process model standing alone is insufficient in that regard. And at the core of the anti-terrorism legislation is the domestic implementation of international law undertakings, in particular, the domestic implementation by Canada of 12 issue specific anti-terrorist undertakings, as well as uh, those undertakings mandated by the UN uh, Security Council resolution. A fifth principle, and reference has been made to this, is the prevention principle. In essence, the raison d'etre of the Canadian uh, legislation, and that in other countries, and that of the UN Security Council resolution, is organized around a culture of prevention and preemption as distinct from reactive, after-the-fact law enforcement. This includes the range of international terrorist offenses domesticated into Bill C-36, which seek to disable and dismantle the terrorist network itself, let alone investigative and procedural mechanisms that seek to detect and deter rather than just prosecute and punish. Which leads me to a sixth principle, and that is the proportionality principle. If we are dealing with extraordinary legislation responding to an extraordinary threat, it nonetheless must conform to the principle of proportionality, of just remedies serving just objectives. And here the principles and of proportionality as set forth 
in our uh, jurisprudence uh, will come to the fore. That is that the remedies chosen must be reasonably connected to the objectives sought to be secured, that it must minimally intrude on civil liberties, a minimal impairment principle, and the cost analysis in human and uh, economic and uh, justice terms, which has to be factored into it. Principle seven, the Charter of Rights principle. It's been said that, and mentioned in this conference yesterday on a number of occasions, that the bill was pre-tested under the Charter. This does not mean, and certainly should not be intended to suggest, that therefore the legislation is Charter-proof. Only that the legislation is Charter-bound. In a word, the legislation is not immune from any Charter challenge, and any limitation on a right under the Charter, and with respect to the principles of uh, criminal justice that Patrice uh, spoke about, will have to comport with the Charter requirements and the basic uh, values of a free and uh, democratic uh, society, which were uh, again elicited in his paper. Principle number eight, the comparativist principle. In determining the justificatory basis uh, for the Bill C-36, uh, recourse was had to comparative anti-terrorist legislation in other free and democratic uh, societies, such as the UK, uh, the US, uh, France, uh, Germany, and the like. The importance of this and the experience gained from it was not only to appreciate what other free and democratic uh, societies were doing, but to understand not only that all other free and democratic societies had enacted or were enacting this legislation, but that the purpose of character of that enactment, looking at their travaux preparatoire, was to protect those societies to be free and democratic. This does not mean, and again, I would not wish it to have it inferred, that just because we look at other free and democratic societies and our legislation may be preferable to those having uh, looked at their experience first, that we do not have to conform to our own domestic principles and values. Not at all. I mention it only that this was part of the review process and that the Supreme Court of Canada has also looked to the comparativist principle in terms of uh, its appreciation of the constitutionality of legislation. Brings me to the ninth principle, and that is the notion and importance of due process safeguards and the principles of, of criminal justice, the principles of fundamental justice, and again, these were elucidated in Patrice's paper, and I need not go into it. But while I, only in this sense, that while I've argued that an, an analysis of counterterrorism legislation such as Bill C-36 should proceed from a more inclusive international criminal justice model, this does not mean that the domestic due process model is unimportant or irrelevant. On the contrary, that domestic due process model is a necessary model and safeguard to be factored into our appreciation of the foundational underpinnings of the legislation, let alone civil libertarian uh, safeguards. That domestic due process safeguards are not enough. We need to enlarge the model to include the international criminal uh, justice uh, model. Principle uh, number 10, very quickly, is the minority rights principle. And that is the protection of visible minorities in particular from being singled out for differential and discriminatory treatment. Principle number 11 is the anti-hate principle to protect, again, uh, visible minorities from any hate on the uh, internet or any in the uh, technological uh, ambiance, which can have the effect also not only of singling them out uh, for differential uh, targeting, but for incitement of acts of terrorism itself. And finally, the oversight uh, principle to which reference has been made. And in this regard, it is clear that the oversight principle is a fundamental uh, principle and a range of oversight mechanisms to ensure both parliamentary and public accountability are referenced with respect to this uh, legislation and, and beyond it. I'm referring, of course, to the application of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, to the application of international uh, human rights norms, the annual reports to Parliament to which reference has been made of the Minister of Justice and Solicitor General on a federal basis, and the reports to the public on in a counterpart uh, provincial uh, basis. I arose in the House on October 16th 
one day after the Bill C-36 was introduced to identify what I called 10 areas of civil libertarian concern, which areas were reinforced, if not enlarged, by the witness testimony before our Parliamentary Justice and Human Rights Committee. These included, and I'm just going to list them, there's no time uh, to go into it, because I think some of them still bear concern. The definition of what constitutes a terrorist activity, some of that has been circumscribed. It is still problematic in my view. Second, the requirement of mens rea uh, for criminal liability, that at least is now consistent throughout the legislation. Third, the issuance of Attorney General Security Certificates, which in the initial form of Bill C-36 were unfettered, unreviewable, and secret, and were cause alone uh, to oppose uh, this act, have been uh, redressed, though there still is an, an additional uh, ministerial uh, power uh, that uh, needs to be addressed in that regard. For the non-discrimination principle to protect minorities, in part included, could have been included in a broader way. Five, the sunset clauses respecting preventive arrest and investigative uh, mechanisms, they're not, in fact, full sunset clauses, because Parliament, by way of a resolution, can, in, in fact, reenact them. It does not require a, an actual parliamentary reenactment. There's not a full lapsing of the sunset clauses, and they are limited only to the preventive arrest and investigative uh, mechanism uh, provisions. In my view, I think they could be extended to other provisions in the legislation. Number uh, six were the oversight mechanisms that I referred to. Seven, uh, anti-hate legislation that I referred to. Eight, the listing of terrorist activities. While there was some modest amendment with regard to an enhanced capacity for judicial, judicial review, there still is insufficient uh, prior notice and procedural fairness uh, before the listing takes place. And by the way, these are all critiques that I advanced during uh, the parliamentary debate. They're not ones that I'm now uh, raising after the debate. Uh, the requirement of the Attorney General consent uh, to prosecute, the provision of a ministerial authorization to wiretap without uh, appropriate judicial authorization, in my view, still uh, problematic. Erwin Kotler, Liberal Member of Parliament, addressing the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy on March 26, 2002. for the judicial review of the restriction of fundamental rights guaranteed by the Charter and of the constitutional validity of recent anti-terrorism legislation was established by the Supreme Court in its 1986 decision, The Queen v. Oaks. The Court laid out a proportionality test. It involved the ponderation of the importance and reasonableness of the restrictions to Charter rights, the legislative objectives pursued, the pressing social, collective, or national interests involved as justification for the restriction, the rationality and design of these restrictions, and the degree of the restrictions balanced with the rights of the individual. In the Oaks decision, the Supreme Court concluded that Canada's Narcotic Control Act of 1970 was unconstitutional because it violated a basic legal right that of the presumption of innocence guaranteed in Section 11D of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The problem was the Act's Reverse Onus Clause. Under Section 8, if an individual is convicted of possession, there was a statutory presumption that he or she was in possession with intent to traffic, unless they could prove otherwise. The Reverse Onus imposed the legal burden on the accused to prove on a balance of probabilities that there was no such purpose. And this violated a basic fundamental right to the presumption of innocence, even when balanced with the important national objectives of the Narcotic Control Act to interdict drug trafficking and abuse. Any restriction must be justifiably reasonable in a free and democratic society. The presumption of innocence requires that an individual be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, that the state must bear the burden of proof, 
and that the criminal prosecutions must be carried out in accordance with lawful procedures and fairness. Recent jurisprudence has refined the proportionality principles laid out by the court. In terms of the government's recent anti-terrorism laws and in terms of the actions and strategies of our allies in the war on terrorism, the courts have a framework for reviewing restrictions to our basic legal rights. In responding to September 11th, Canada's legislation and its international obligations and allegiances have changed the acceptable limits to charter rights in attempting to prevent, investigate and prosecute terrorist acts and groups. Patrice Garon is professor of law at Université Laval in Quebec City. He considers the necessary role of the judiciary in the oversight of new anti-terrorism legislation. Patrice Garon is professor of law at the Université Laval in Quebec City. He considers the necessary role of the judiciary in the oversight of the new anti-terrorism legislation and the constitutional logic necessary for assessing the nature and reasonableness of the restrictions to charter rights by this legislation. Cette réforme législative a été assez mal reçue au Québec euh, dans le courant de l'automne et j'ai apporté avec moi un certain nombre de découpures, de clippings, de découpures de journaux où on parle d'état policier, de pollution législative, de loi pour tout, euh, de Ottawa en a-t-il trop fait. Évidemment, ce qui vient d'Ottawa est assez souvent mal perçu en territoire québécois. Il faut euh, situer ce train de législation dans une euh, perspective beaucoup plus large. Tout d'abord, la perspective constitutionnelle des valeurs euh, que, euh, qui sont les nôtres et qui ont été énoncées par la Cour suprême dans un très grand nombre d'arrêts. Euh, la Cour suprême également, dans le discours de la Cour suprême, on a euh, également un éventail de l'ensemble de ces principes de justice fondamentale qui sont ces paramètres de protection des droits à la vie, à la sécurité et à la liberté. Et il faut donc apprécier cette, ce train de législation au regard de chacun, chacune de, de, ces, de chacun de ces préceptes de notre système juridique, chacun de ces principes de justice fondamentale. Plutôt que de partir en peur et de vouloir tout condamner, il faut peut-être prendre le temps, laisser la poussière retomber et peut-être apprécier euh, euh, l'ensemble de ces législations et chacune de ces dispositions au regard de chacun des principes de justice fondamentale. Ce sont un ensemble de valeurs interreliées qui font partie de notre régime constitutionnel. Et c'est dans ce système de valeurs que s'enracinent des principes de justice fondamentale, euh, ces principes qui sont ces paramètres de protection de nos droits et libertés, surtout le droit à la vie, droit à la liberté, le droit à la sécurité. Mais auparavant, la Cour suprême, Dès 1985, dès le premier arrêt où elle a parlé de sécurité, a attiré notre attention, euh, sous la plume de la juge Wilson, sur la dimension collective de la sécurité. Et dans cet arrêt-là, euh, on, est, on est un peu surpris de voir déjà la Cour suprême et, et dans la bouche d'une des membres de la Cour qui, qui s'est illustrée par la défense des libertés individuelles, de noter qu'il appartient à l'État de, de prendre des mesures pour faire face aux mesures aux menaces extérieures visant notre bien-être collectif, il y a aussi le bien-être individuel des citoyens. Et dans ces cas-là, il pourrait arriver que le législateur soit appelé à restreindre même les libertés, à restreindre les principes de justice fondamentale. Il appartiendra alors, euh, en dernière analyse, aux tribunaux, et c'est ce que la Cour suprême nous a dit dans sa jurisprudence sur l'article 7, sous les principes de justice fondamentale, il appartiendra aux tribunaux de pondérer euh, les intérêts de la société, j'aime bien l'expression intérêt de la société, euh, euh, par rapport aux droits individuels, à l'ensemble des droits individuels dont l'éventail nous a été fourni par la Cour suprême dans une jurisprudence extrêmement abondante. Lorsqu'on trouve dans cette législation des limitations ou des restrictions, il faut vraiment se demander dans quelle mesure cela se justifie eu égard à l'importance de l'objectif poursuivi par les législateurs, euh, euh, c'est-à-dire à, à l'importance de la menace urgente et réelle à laquelle la collectivité doit faire face s'agissant du terrorisme catastrophique. D'autre part, et c'est extrêmement important au regard de, 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 de ce train de législation, 
c'est que la, la Cour suprême euh, s'est confirmée une véritable vocation de pondérer, comme je l'ai mentionné tout à l'heure, les intérêts de l'État, d'une part les intérêts de la collectivité et la protection des droits individuels. Et cet exercice de pondération est extrêmement important et, et constitue pour nous vraiment une assurance que les droits et libertés euh, seront protégés. Et c'est cette assurance-là qui doit être prise en compte. Deux choses sont importantes. Hier, on l'a entendu, effectivement, lorsqu'il s'agit de législation de ce type pour protéger euh, la population contre euh, le terrorisme. D'une part, qu'il y ait un encadrement législatif, un encadrement normatif. Euh, euh, le représentant de la France hier, celui qui a parlé un peu de la situation française, a, a, a mentionné que dans l'État français, assez tôt, on en est arrivé vraiment à encadrer euh, dans la législation euh, le pouvoir discrétionnaire des autorités publiques et notamment le pouvoir euh, de la police. Et deuxièmement, ce qui est extrêmement important, il faut que la législation ménage des « judicial safeguards », pour employer une expression utilisée hier, donc qu'il y ait une possibilité pour les juges, pour le pouvoir judiciaire, d'intervenir préalablement, pendant et après, pour protéger l'essentiel de nos libertés essentielles. Et je pense que la Cour suprême du Canada, la Cour fédérale et l'ensemble des grandes cours au Canada se sont montrés extrêmement vigilantes depuis 1982. Certains ont parlé d'activisme judiciaire. J'étais même un, un des premiers à dénoncer, à être surpris de cet activisme judiciaire. Mais avec un peu de recul, bah, je, 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 je suis peut-être rassuré du fait que les cours, les tribunaux osent intervenir, osent euh, à l'occasion déclarer des droits inconstitutionnels ou ose prononcer l'inconstitutionnalité de certaines euh, mesures, ça fait partie du rôle essentiel des cours de justice et c'est une des garanties extrêmement importantes. Donc, encadrement, encadrement normatif. Quand on a parlé de pollution législative, du fait que les législations sont complexes, bien, un encadrement législatif, ça comprend des normes. L'essentiel, c'est que ces normes-là puissent être interprétées, puissent donner lieu à un débat judiciaire et ça, ça c'est ici pour contrer la première accusation qu'on a lancée à l'égard d'abord de la définition euh, de terrorisme, l'article 83 du Code criminel, et également un, un grand nombre d'autres euh, notions. La Cour nous dit, écoutez, l'ensemble de ces notions-là, euh, de ces termes-là, de ces terminologies, de ces concepts, peuvent faire peuvent donner lieu à un débat judiciaire. C'est le critère reconnu par la jurisprudence à sa jurisprudence dominante pour vérifier si ces normes-là constituent pour le citoyen un avertissement raisonnable du comportement qu'ils doivent adopter et d'autre part, si ça constitue un encadrement euh, adéquat du pouvoir discrétionnaire de l'autorité chargée d'appliquer la loi, les Law Enforcement Authorities. Euh, il y a également l'exigence constitutionnelle que les législations n'aient pas une portée excessive. Donc, il faut être en présence d'une ou de dispositions dont, dont la généralité euh, n'est pas telle qu'elle soit sans lien rationnel avec l'objectif ou soit complètement disproportionnée dans ses effets par rapport à l'objectif poursuivi. Professor Garant is a professor of law at the Université Laval, talking about the necessary role of the judiciary in the oversight of new anti-terrorism legislation. Since 1991, Alan Leadbeater has been Deputy Information Commissioner of Canada. The Commissioner monitors government institutions to ensure their respect of the access rights and obligations set out in the Access to Information Act, as well as the rights to privacy of Canadian citizens. Mr. Leadbeater examines the shift of power from the individual to the state, operated by recent amendments to the Criminal Code and other legislation by Bill C-36. I hope to tell you a bit about one of our principal methods for monitoring what federal government agencies, security and intelligence agencies are doing, the Access to Information Act, and how it was affected by 
the uh, Bill C-36. But you know, uh, now in 1983, we Canadians were very fortunate to be given a new and powerful democratic right. We've been talking a lot about personal rights today, but this was a democratic right. The right of access to records held by government, subject to limited and specific exemptions, um, several of which relate to national security, national defense, and international relations. With independent review, a two-step independent review, first to an officer of parliament, the information commissioner, and then secondly to the Federal Court of Canada, with rights thereafter of appeal to the Federal Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, this right was made quasi-constitutional. It operates notwithstanding any other act of parliament. No government, liberal or conservative, those are the only ones who have lived with this act, have enjoyed the experience. They have lost the ability as a result of this legislation to be able to dole out information to Canadians by grace and favour. They now have a burden in law to justify that secrecy meets standards set by Parliament. The current government took advantage of the 9-11 disaster, the 9-11 terrorist tragedy, to grab back its ability to override by fiat this right of access, which we've had now for close to 20 years. And they've done so through amendments to the Canada Evidence Act and the Access to Information Act. Very wide and vaguely defined groups, uh, types of information can be withheld. The universe is broad, I'll talk a bit about that. And there's very broad inf inv interference with the investigative functions of the Information Commissioner and the review jurisdiction of the courts. There is no relation, I hope, that you will um, see it this way, although I hope we have some debate. There is no relation between this, what I've called a power grab, and the war on terrorism. This new change is not about making us safer. It is about putting the government back in control over what we know. The first version of Bill C-36 authorized the Attorney General at any time, those words are important, at any time to issue a certificate that prohibits the disclosure of information for the purpose of protecting international relations or national defense or security. And that same provision said that the Access to Information Act would not apply to any information so certified. There were no time limits on the period of secrecy. Even now, think about it. The most secret class of information under the Act are cabinet confidences, and they're time limited to 20 years. No time limit under the first version. Now, this shift of power from the individual Canadian to the state came under intense scrutiny, as we all know, by the Standing Committee on Justice and uh, Human Rights and by the Special committee of the Senate set up to inquire into uh, Bill C-36. And uh, the first thing that these committees did was ask the Minister of Justice, the then Minister of Justice, why this was needed. In all of her evidence before the committees, the Minister offered only one explanation. The explanation I think is most exhaustively set out in a response she gave to a question posed by a bloc member, uh, Michel Balemer, um, when she appeared before the committee on the 18th of October. And the, and the member asked the minister, 
Why do you propose to remove information from the scope of the Access to Information Act and review by the Commissioner in the courts when the very type of information you say you're concerned about is the type of information protected by exemptions 13 and 15, these are the national defense and international relations exemptions, which are already designed and in the act. Remember this act came after FLQ crises. This was not an act that had not been fashioned with the realities of terrorism in mind. And the minister, this is her answer. No, what Section 15 does in fact, this is the section on na uh, 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 national defense and national security, what Section 15 does in fact is leave open, creates a loophole in terms of the possibility of disclosure of information that may have been provided to us by our allies. And in fact, we must work with, one, with our allies. One is gathering intelligence, one shares intelligence, much of this speaks to the national security, not only of this country, but of other countries, and to the very lives of perhaps informants and others. Unless we can, this is the heart of it, unless we can guarantee to our allies that that kind of limited, exceptionally sensitive information will not be subject to public exposure, we will not get that information and we will not be able to fight terrorism effectively. I'm afraid, Mr. Chair, she goes on, that under existing access legislation, there is a loophole created because it permits the access commissioner to make certain recommendations. In fact, as far as we're concerned, that is not sufficient for our allies. And we must do that which is necessary to ensure we have the best information and are protecting that exceptionally sensitive information. Now, the information commissioner and others challenged the minister to explain the loophole. It really couldn't be the information commissioner. The information commissioner can't order the disclosure of anything. The commissioner reminded the minister that even the government's own studies concluded that the Access to Information Act poses no risk of disclosure of sensitive intelligence information. No such information had ever been disclosed in the 18 years of the life of the Act. And that the Access to Information Act regime offered arguably more secrecy to intelligence information than do the laws of our allies. The only loophole thus could be the possibility that a misguided judge of the federal court would order the disclosure of sensitive information, notwithstanding the clear exemptions that are in the act. And given the federal court history under section 13 and 15 and the presence of appeal mechanisms to the federal court of appeal and Supreme Court, the misguided, the misguided judge theory had no rational basis. And there was an air of reality, after all, to the minister's suggestion that our allies had asked the government to give them a guarantee by plugging the misguided judge loophole. The information commissioner asked the minister to produce the evidence of any such request. None of it was forthcoming. And if there was such evidence, could that possibly be a national security secret that we'd been asked to do this by an ally? The minister could not produce the evidence or did not because our major suppliers of intelligence also operate under freedom of information laws which include avenues of independent review, all of them. They understand that the purpose of these laws is to remove the caprice from decisions about secrecy by subjecting such decisions to independent legislative and judicial systems of definition and review. That's all we ask for, I think, in a free and democratic society. The Allies want no more than the simple assurance that Canadians can protect the intelligence information that needs to be protected, and not a single ally doubts Canada's, Canada's ability to do so under our existing legislation. 
If I'm wrong in that, produce the evidence. In the face of the criticism, the former minister went back to the drawing board and made a number of changes. And it would be a mistake to assume that these changes amounted to concessions on this point. In fact, the amendments broadened the sweeping scope of the secrecy certificates, increased the power of the Attorney General to interfere with the independent investigations of the Commissioner, and it would appear the government's addiction to secrecy was to be fed at all costs. Addressing information and privacy issues in light of the new anti-terrorism laws, Alan Leadbeater is Deputy Information Commissioner of Canada. His remarks were recorded on March 26, 2002, during the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy. This has been Rights and Restrictions, Democracy in the Balance. Part 7 of the series, Terrorism, Law and Democracy, which explores the rule of law after September 11th and the ongoing international campaign against terror. In our next episodes, we will continue to examine the oversight of government institutions and the international context for protecting basic human rights. I was Khalid. This has been a long-term memory radio presentation from the People's Power Station in Mount Real. CKUT 90.3 FM. Join us next time for part eight, keeping the state in check.